This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 472. If we dropped our preconceived notions based on this one very narrow view of language that we've learned, and we step back to think of it from a scientific and empirical standpoint and a historical standpoint, the view we get of language is drastically different. Paranoid about the ums and uhs that pepper your presentations? Concerned that people notice your vocal fry? Bewildered by the meteoric rise of so? Well, what if these features of our speech weren't a sign of cultural and linguistic degeneration, but rather some of the most dynamic and revolutionary tools at our disposal? Hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. I am a lover of language, and today's conversation is all about that topic. I'm going to admit right up front that I get a little bit geeky about this topic, so forgive me. But in just a few minutes, we'll be welcoming Valerie Friedland. She's author of a brand new book, came out last week, called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. I'll be asking Valerie to share about how our idea of what's correct and what's not with regard to language is often not even accurate in the first place. What new research says about verbal tics like um and uh, we'll unpack the history of words like, well, like, and literally, and you'll be surprised, trust me, and much, much more. In the last week, we've had dozens of people sign up for free for the Read to Lead community online at jeffbrown.me. When you join the community, you're making an intentional decision, I would argue, to begin leveling up the kind of people you surround yourself with. It was Charlie Tremendous Jones who famously said, you will be the same person five years from now that you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. And the Read to Lead community is all about upping the ante in both of those categories. Inside is a diverse group of people with one core commonality, a desire for lifelong learning and professional growth. Now, whether you're a professional desiring to increase your value to your team and organization, or perhaps a creative looking to build a career on your terms, we welcome you here. With a basic Read to Lead community membership, you can expect access to exclusive content. I just added some of that over the weekend. In fact, weekly business book summaries on topics like leadership, productivity, mindset, habits, communication, and more. Curated resources like articles, interviews, apps, videos, etc. And community forum access where you can interact with others who take personal and professional development as seriously as you do. Those conversations center around topics like growth and development, note making, side hustles and self-employment, personal branding, and artificial intelligence. If you're passionate about these areas, you found your tribe, and I hope you'll join us. In just the last 24 hours, I posted an extensive book summary of the book, Getting Things Done by David Allen, which first published back in 2001. And Mandy replied, how very timely. Just this past week, I started reviewing this book and listened to some of the GDT podcasts. I've previously read and attempted to put GDT into practice, but got away from it. I'm working to bring those back with a practice that is sustainable for me. Thanks, Jeff. And then Kathy wrote, Thanks so much for a great summary of one of my favorite productivity books. I've loved GDT ever since I bought it back in 2001. Not saying I achieved perfect GDT status, but the principles have stuck with me through the years. Basically, what I'm trying to say is the Read to Lead community is a thriving community of nearly 400 people now, and we'd love to have you participate. Basic membership is free and available to you right now when you go to Jeff Brown. Dot me. I hope you'll check it out. Again, it's jeffbrown.me. Valerie Friedland is a professor of linguistics in the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno. She writes a popular language blog on psychology today called Language in the Wild and is also a professor for the Great Courses series. Her new book is called Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Well, Valerie, I'm really excited to have you here. I, I like to think that uh, this topic is one that's, that's sort of been in my wheelhouse for a while. I'm certainly no expert uh, as you are, but I, I can go back 20 years and remember reading a book on, on a similar topic, uh, a book by John McWhorter, you may be familiar with, Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language and Music and, and Why We Should Like 
care. His take a little different than yours. So I'm excited to, 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 to hear from you today. So thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your wisdom today. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to first touch on something not connected to your book. And, and, and that's something I think more people need to be aware of. I certainly uh, was aware of it, but I think a lot of people aren't. And that's the great courses and more specifically, the work uh, you've done with them. Tell me a little bit about that process. Yes, it's actually, you know, it's a video and audio series. And I will say that uh, if you are going to go out and get the great courses, it's called Language and Society, the one that I did, then I would suggest the audio one because I think it's great to listen to while you're out walking or doing other tasks, you know, it's just sort of one of those back of the kind of like a podcast. Um, so it's awesome in that way. But uh, years ago, I think it was 2012, they just approached me after, I think, hearing me give a talk somewhere and asked if I'd be interested in doing a lecture series for them um, based on my experience as a linguist. So I put together a series. I wrote 24 lectures. That was that was fun. That was actually more work than this book, I think, <laughs> because then I actually had to go record it and do a video. And I'm now I wouldn't say that um, video skills were not in my wheelhouse at that time, but it was fun. And I think there is are some really interesting topics covered in that series. So every lecture is about some different topic that has to do with language and society, whether that's gender, whether that's age, whether that's ethnicity, you know, just everything that you've ever wondered about language in terms of the larger forces that impact it are in that lecture series which is a little different from this book that takes a more specific angle on, on language. And I, I love the title. That's the first thing that grabbed my attention when I was uh, asked about having you on by your publicist. But I was taken aback when I saw the subtitle. I thought, well, arguing for the good in bad English, is that even possible? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's quite possible. You say that if you want to truly understand how language is used uh, to express our social selves, we have to completely reimagine the way we think about language in the first place, right? So, so we have to start thinking about language like a linguist. So, so what, what does that entail exactly? Yes. And, you know, I think I went through that same kind of revelation of looking at language differently. And that's how I got interested in linguistics when I was in college and I took a course. So, you know, we grow up taking English classes and we grow up speaking and having these ideas about people based on the way they talk. Our parents instill ideas about language to us in addition to teaching us please and thank you. A lot of times, you know, if we say things like, uh, I go there as a little kid, you know, you're all say, no, no, you go there. So we have a lot of different sort of input into our beliefs about language as we grow up. But none of them are actually scientific, which I think is fascinating that what we teach in school is actually not the scientific view of language. It's not based on understanding our psychology uh, and how our cognitive system processes language. It's not based on articulatory mechanics of how we produce language, both of which have a big impact on how language looks and how language changes over time. And it's also not based on the true understanding of why we have variation in language. So, you know, a lot of times we dismiss variation as bad, as bad English. So that's, for example, if someone says had went instead of had gone or gotta go instead of must go or, um, you know, deletes a plural marker on three dollar. All of those things we see as mistakes or errors based on this one specific perspective on language. So, you know, the idea that English, you get an English class about what language should be. Mm. But if we dropped our preconceived notions based on this one very narrow view of language that we've learned, and we step back to think of it from a scientific and empirical standpoint and a historical standpoint, the view we get of language is drastically different. And I think people don't realize that the view that they learn in school is only about 200 years old. And English, mm. obviously, has been around a lot longer than that. And language has been around a lot longer than that. So we're actually getting, I'm not going to say it's a wrong view because it has a purpose in those contexts, yeah. um, but it's it, It's not a view that is based on empirical fact or history. And so if we can understand these, not as variations related to errors, but as variations related to the natural course of linguistic evolution and social evolution, I think we get a very different perspective. So you know, disliked and bad are very, very different. And we should recognize that what we're doing when we say someone speaks bad English is we're actually saying someone speaks disliked English. And that's mm. a very different thing. Some of the things that, that Valerie covers in the book include ums and uhs. We'll get into my history with that in a moment. The word like, dude, literally, vocal, fry, singular they. 
Uh, I'm curious to know, before we dive into some of these, how did you go about choosing the ones you included in the book? How how did you decide which ones are going to make the cut? Because there's more you could have included, right? Right. Yes. It could have been a very long, it could have been two volumes. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe one, another volume will still come out. You know, that it was actually a lot of fun. There were some that absolutely just had to be in there because those are the ones that are so common in the complaints people bring to me. Mm. What's really funny is as a linguist, um, you know, I give a lot of public talks and I teach classes every semester and I teach classes on social linguistics. And I always get approached by people bringing me their complaints about language. So rarely do people come up and say, I love it when people say whatever. Instead, people come up and say, gosh, it drives me crazy. Or I hate it when people say you like, or literally, Mm non-literally. So people like to bring me their pet peeves. And I would say that like and literally used non-literally are two of the most common pet peeves that I hear about. Um, So those were natural. They had to be in the book just because I don't think I've been anywhere or given a talk anywhere or taught a course Mm -hmm. at any time and not had people bring those two up. Mm -hmm. And then others were my personal interests that drove them. So for example, dude, my son, I have a teenager, a teenage son. And when he was younger, he duded me all the time, constantly. (laughs) It was shocking how much dude came out of his mouth. And Mm. it made me really wonder about, well, why is he duding? What's the point? And why does it affect him so early? And so prevalently, it's everywhere. So I started doing research in dude. And what I found was so fascinating, I wanted to share it. Um, And then I also have my students study the progressive marker the ing that we put on verbs like walking and talking mm-hmm. every year because it's such a fascinating marker and people have no idea about this incredible history that brought it to us and the fact that they're actually wrong when they say that ing is the progressive marker from a historical standpoint mm. so it's it, i just had to add add that one and then of course singular they has been recently sort of allowed in uh, from usage guides and MLA and things like that. So I wanted to cover that one because I I know it's really a a hotbed of controversy in linguistics at the moment or in language about why we need to have extra pronouns and this sort of idea that pronouns are supposed to be fixed when actually the history of language of English shows us that's not true at all. Mm. So I just thought it would be useful to eliminate that. But of course, there were some that I couldn't put in that I really would have loved to, um, irregardless, for example, is one of those. Uh, I also find I have a lot of friends that hate the word moist. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and and there's some really fascinating reasons why we hate that word. So it was hard to choose. I had so many to choose from, um, but I had ideas. And then my editor and I kind of talked through which ones we felt were absolutely priorities. And that's what made it into the book. Well, my wife counts herself among those who who dislikes the M word. Out of respect for her, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll have to write another book and include that one. <laughs> well, you hinted at this a moment ago, but talk a bit about how the changes in our language managed to just gradually creep up. Oftentimes, I think to your point, it stems from our desire, I think, to project a certain persona at times. And and something that surprised me that I was was ignorant of is that oftentimes it's young women or women at the forefront of the changes that are happening. Absolutely. So I think there are two different parts of that question. Um, and I can start with whichever you think is more interesting, but there's the question of how language change sort of creeps in over time. So that's sort of a historical perspective of what happens to make change happen. Mm-hmm. But the second question is who's driving those changes, right? How do they happen? What is the instigator? Because we have these chronic linguistic pressures that operate on us psychologically and articulatorily, meaning We have certain ways our brains work and certain ways our mouths work that make language do certain things in certain ways. And this means that we're going to have commonalities in all languages in the same directions because of these natural tendencies we have just as human beings in the way we're constructed. Um, Good examples of that would be things like syllable structure. Uh, Every language seems to have preferred syllable structures that are the same. So the rare form of a syllable is a very complex syllable with lots of consonants tacked on each side. So a word like like sixths, you know, I can barely even say it. Right. It's a crazy syllable. And in fact, it's quite a rare syllable. English is very promiscuous with its syllables, and it's very unusual in that way. Many, many languages do not allow those kinds of syllables. 
But one syllable that all language allows is a consonant vowel syllable like ma, da, pa, sa, right? All of those are very prevalent and very frequent. And what we find is language change in languages that allow syllables beyond that often operates to try to get those languages back towards a more optimal syllable structure. Mm. So in English, that means when I'm saying a word like sixth, you know, I'm barely can say all those consonants. The natural course will be when I'm in a you know conversation, I will actually delete consonants. So I'll say six, where I'm really just saying six because it is not the natural tendency of language to have consonants like that. So again, you see this process where we delete consonants to get back to that more natural syllable. Mm. That seems to be a cognitive or, you know, and and also articulatory pressure we have on us. Um, Other things have to do with the way that sounds are articulated in fast speech. When we say sounds together, they're not those individual sounds perfectly articulated. They take on characteristics of the sounds that come before them or come after them. So, for example, I think a great way you could see this is if you say the word cat. Okay. Go ahead and say it. Cat. All right. And then say the word can. Can. All right. And if you're listening, say those two together. Cat, can. And what you notice is there the same vowel, but mm-hmm. notice that how different that vowel sounds. Right. And that's because in one case, it's followed by a T and the other case, it's followed by an N, which linguists call a nasal sound. And nasals mm. tend to universally bleed into the sounds that come before and after them. And we call this nasal assimilation to be fancy about it. But this seems to be something universal, a characteristics of nasality. And that's probably because of the way nasal sounds are made. You have to lower the velum. The air flows through the nose. It's really hard in fast speech to get that sucker to close and open exactly (laughs) tightly. So therefore, we find that to be a universal trend. So again, universality has a lot to do with how we change over time. So languages often will allow nasality in places that it it shouldn't be like on a vowel if they don't make nasal vowels as part of their phonemic inventory, which means English doesn't have a difference between an a and an a. Mm. French does. French does. So in in French, if I'm a French speaker, I can't allow nasality like that, right? I'm going to have to block it, which takes effort. You don't think about it, but it's something you learn as a baby to do. You have to be much more exact in your articulatory motions for those sounds because of that. In English, since it doesn't matter, you you just do it. And that's one part about language change we don't realize is a lot of times it's driven by what's not important in our language. So if nasality on a vowel is not important to making a meaning difference. Um, so, for example, in, in French, if I say ah, it means two. If I say ah, which is a nasal ah, it means year. So it makes a difference, just that one little nasal sound. But in English, if I say ah or ah, like cat or can, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference. And therefore, my language can allow it to creep in and take on social meaning. Mm. Um, And sometimes we notice nasality when it's particular regional dialects. So a lot of times people will say like, oh, people from Chicago talk with their nose. (laughs) And so maybe that's one quality. They tend to allow a little more nasality in, a little more nasal airflow than speakers in another region. So those kinds of underlying changes that happen naturally as a course of languages get picked up by certain groups and it becomes a marker of identity in addition to simply being a side effect of natural tendencies. So that's the historical way that language creeps in over time. That often Mm. takes decades. But the bigger question is what triggers those kinds of changes to get picked up and be social markers, right? So how does an underlying tendency we all have all of a sudden become something that gets picked up by one group, but not another. So that seems to be driven by social characteristics of the people that are picking it up. And what we find when we study language change over time is it tends to be the same groups that push forward language change that are the triggers of spreading those inherent changes. And that tends to be young speakers Mm -hmm. and not just any young speakers, but young women in particular which I think surprises many people. But if we stop and think about who we notice with language, so who says like, who says literally, non-literally, right? Who uses vocal fry? Who's getting criticized all the time? Young women. And why? Because they're novel. They're innovators. And we always notice social disruptors. We notice linguistic disruptors as well. Hmm. I can geek out on this all day. I got to tell you that right now. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be hard pressed <laughs> to, to let you go at a, an appropriate time, but I'm going to do my best. As one who edits his own podcast, I cannot begin to tell you, Valerie, how many ums and uhs have been left on the cutting room floor. I'm talking about me more so than I'm talking about my guests. 
But recent research has shed some new light on these, if I can call them verbal tics. What have you learned about um and uhs and the like? You know, it's so interesting because that is a perfect example of how our social beliefs about what we prefer and disprefer in speech and our and the reality of the linguistic benefits of those features completely are in opposition. <laughs> we don't like uh and um and in fact very few people don't cut them out of things that are broadcast. Uh, I think that's pretty typical of podcasters and news you know reporters and things like that. They go back and they edit those out. Why? Because we hate them. People, no one says, no one says when you're in public speaking class, add some more ums and uhs. Why don't you? No one says that, right? But probably they should. Um, and I, I mean that little tongue in cheek because obviously you don't want to do anything unnatural. But when you look at what they do for us and what they signal, they're actually pretty beneficial in many ways. And there's a reason and a purpose we do them. And they actually have some really good benefits. I mean, that's a that's an example of where a bad feature um, is really good, surprisingly, uh, because we hate those so much. And I threw out in an uh there just for for effect. <laughs> I won't edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk for a minute about the benefits to the person who's using the uhs and ums at the speaker themselves. What we find happens with uhs and ums is that there are actually markers of speech planning or um, sort of big thinking, in other words. So when we're doing more cognitive processing, and we need a minute to kind of work the kinks out of what we're going to say, um, and that sort of means just that we're searching for the right vocabulary word, or we're building a very complex syntactic structure as we go forward, which is why us and ums often come up at the beginning of a sentence, because your brain is pausing for a moment while it's building this really complex syntactic structure and embeddings and things like that with prepositional phrases and relative clauses and all sorts of fancy things. The more of those you have, the more likely an uh or um is going to happen. So the more cognitive effort you're putting into planning what you're going to say, the more likely a uh or an um come up. Not only is it related to the complexity of the syntactic structure, it's also related to the familiarity, abstraction, or difficulty of the vocabulary words you're choosing. So say you're in a field like English that has a lot of different words that are used in that field. So we have a lot of different descriptors. We have a lot of different ways of talking about language uh, versus when you're talking about science, which has a very constrained set of uh, very widely used terminology. What we find is humanities lectures have more us and ums in their speech only while they're lecturing, not while they're just talking in casual conversation than science or math lectures because of the difference in vocabulary. A humanities lecture has many more words to search in their sort of lexicon, their mental lexicon, or basically their mental dictionary when they're coming up with a word to describe something. But when you're a scientist, there's a very constrained set of terminology. Everybody uses the same word. So it's a go-to. It's instant. That neural network is really well-traveled for that specific term. For a humanities lecture, that neural network isn't necessarily as well-traveled because there's so many different neural networks to travel. So the amount of umming and uhing seems to correlate with how many words you have to choose from, how difficult those words are. So, you know, fancy, difficult words that you don't use very often compared to very simple, frequent words that you use quite frequently, um, and how familiar you are with those words. So, you know, I might talk about supply chain logistics every day, and therefore that word has a really sharp neural network. Mm. But for normal people until the pandemic, at least, most of us had never even heard of that word. So it took us a while to get to saying that as quickly as we'd say a word like transportation. Uh, so those words would end up right. triggering an um before them. So from a speaker perspective, it actually helps us do that cognitive work and signal to our listener, hey, I'm going to take a second because I have, I'm doing a lot of hefty retrieval here. So it's actually a sign that you're doing deep thinking, and that can't be a bad thing. No one wants a not deep thinker to talk to, right? right. So that's the benefit to a speaker. The benefit to a listener is not only does it signal that you are needing to wait just a moment while whoever you're talking to takes a sec to retrieve that information. It also, and this is the real crazy superpower of ums and us, it also seems to help us process what they're saying faster, integrate new information faster. And here's what I love. It helps us remember it better later. So tons of benefits to ums and us, and yet we hate them. <laughs> I love that you spelled that out. And, and I don't know if this correlates or not, but as you know, when I sit down with an author to interview them, 
I have typically thought about what I'm going to ask to the point that I've written it out. And I even send that to the author, as you've seen, so that they can have an idea of, of, of knowing what I'm going to ask and have a chance to think about what their answers might, might sound like or look like. Even then, though, I find myself, even though I know pretty much exactly 90% of what I want to say, there are a lot of ahs and ums in there. And I think one of the reasons I do that, and I do it more so than I would like, but I think one of the reasons I do that is because I want it to sound more spontaneous. I want it to sound not like it's you know scripted. It's not necessarily scripted. I'm not doing anything verbatim anyway. But to me, the use of those ahs and ums or us and ums make it sound less so. Is, is there a validity to that, you think? And I do it subconsciously. I do think, you know, sometimes what we find is if someone doesn't use any kind of uh, discourse markers or fill pauses, which is what uh, an um are, that it feels a little robotic yeah. to us and a little less conversational because these are all colloquial speech features. I mean, these are all what we do in conversation. Maybe we don't expect them and don't want them when we're giving a, a talk to, you know, CEOs of major corporations and trying to impress them and get their money to invest in our, our company, because then it suggests that we may not have practiced what we're going to say enough. So I think the reason we tend to dislike it in public speaking context, um, besides the fact that most of us aren't aware of the benefits, is because mm -hmm. we expect that someone that's giving us a public talk, someone that is speaking as an expert, knows what they're talking about. And if you take hesitant features like uh, an um to signal they're working on what they're saying, that tells us, well, you haven't really practiced what you're going to say. Mm. Now, in normal conversation, no one should, right? It feels artificial. And in a conversation like you and I are having, the same goes. But when I'm getting up in front of 500 people and talking to them about something that's my baby, you know, a company I'm trying to start or something like that, then people expect me to not have to hesitate before I talk about it. So I think that's part of the reason why we dislike them in public speaking context is because of that signal of being very practiced and scripted, which is what we prefer in those contexts. Something I noticed too, uh, and I don't know if this if this pertains to other people, yourself or others, but in conversations like this one, I mean, I've 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 gone to the recording later, and I've heard far many more us and ums than I thought I uttered in in the moment, and sometimes from my guest, or I'll go through a, a conversation and realize the guest said you know like every other sentence, and I didn't notice it in the moment necessarily, but when I listen back to it in the recording, suddenly it's obvious. Actually, it's pretty interesting because we find that to be true in almost any case with anything. So sometimes you'll listen to somebody and you're engaged and you're interested and you're intrigued with what they're saying. So the content is really appealing. And we don't tend to notice or even be able to estimate accurately how much of something people did in that conversation. And when we look at studies at uh and umming, we notice that people have different patterns. So certain people do tend to um and uh more than others, and they call them heavy ummers. And there's also um, light ummers. So, you know, there is some personality that's also involved in this. What we find, though, is when someone, a speaker is engaging and interesting and their content is appealing, people are really not good at telling you that they ummed a lot, you know, the person that's listening. But if you call attention to it and you say, oh, my God, did you notice how much that person said uh? Then all of a sudden, we call it the frequency illusion. You, you hear it everywhere, right? All of a sudden, it becomes very noticeable to you. So part of it is just the fact that you're engaged and your, your cognitive effort is not on the form of their speech, but the content of their speech and the delivery. You know, So if there's very, they're very charismatic, a lot of times, we tend to not notice those other things like fillers and filled pauses. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with that. But I will say that people don't tend to accurately assess people that use moderate amounts of um and uh, where we do find it to start to tip over is in the very heavy umming and uhing category. So when people are very heavy users, that does tend to get distracting and seem to draw people's attention. But when you're a moderate user, uh, people actually are not accurate at assessing the difference between a light user and a moderate user. So I think people can relax about that. I'm reminded too, you talked earlier about ing at the end of words and, and, and lopping off the G. I noticed that for myself in, in, in recording conversations like this one, I'm, and my wife calls it my radio voice. I don't think that my voice doesn't change. I'm, I'm adamant about that. I spent 26 years in radio, but I, I'm not, a, my voice doesn't change when the microphone turns on, right? I'm more articulate, I think, because of the situation that I'm in. Versus casual conversation. If I'm in a job interview, I'm going to be thinking more about how I'm saying what I'm saying than if I'm with my buddies on a Wednesday night at, at Buffalo Wild Wings or something, right? 
And so I like to think, and I think back to a conversation I had with Michael Port about this, a guy who wrote a book called Steal the Show, a book about public speaking. He comes at it from an acting background, acting perspective. And he talks about this, this term that we use as a pejorative. Uh, when we talk about people being chameleon-like, it means that they're, they're not true to themselves, basically, right? But he, he points out that really a chameleon changes its colors to adapt to its environment. It's never not a chameleon. It's always a chameleon. And so I feel like that much of these changes that we might go through as individuals in a single day, where in one situation, we might use uh, one type of language, another situation might use another, is never a situation where we're not being ourselves. It's, it's us simply adapting to the environment that we're in. Absolutely. And I, I think I would argue that your wife is right, that you are changing. But I think the idea is that that's not a bad thing. And everybody right. does it. So in linguistics, we call this, I'm going to give you a fancy linguistic lingo, lingo term here, the, a speaker's linguistic repertoire. Mm. And so I think that it's better to think of it as your repertoire, which is a good thing when you have a repertoire of something, right? That means you have flexibility that you can change to what is necessary at that moment. And we don't live in the same context and the same situations and with the same conversational partners every day, all the same, all the time. We change it up. We change it from people we need to have very formal standard speech with to people like you've said, your friends at Buffalo Wild Wings, that we actually would be weird if we did that. I mean, who wants to go out with the your boss, right? Nobody. I mean, maybe some people want to go, but, but your boss's language, right? In right. those formal contexts or the, you know, imagine going to a job interview and them taking you to a bar. You're not going to be comfortable there. It's not going to be at all the same kind of Friday night that you're thinking of with your, your friends. So it's natural for us to shift in those contexts. Um, we also shift depending on topic. So it's not just who you're talking to, it's what you're talking about. So when you argue, you usually use more formal speech features, actually, than when you don't. And I also heard a really fascinating study at an academic conference. I don't think it's been published yet, but some students from Stanford, so graduate students in linguistics, studied the difference between talk show hosts during the pandemic talking to guests over Zoom and those same guests on that same talk show host prior to the pandemic in person. And they found a big shift in terms of formality over Zoom. Mm. So it seems like being on camera, being on this video in this sort of awkward context, I guess, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, made people shift towards more formal features in their speech from when they were relaxed and in person. So situation has a big impact as well. And if we didn't shift, we wouldn't be considered appropriate speakers. We'd feel we'd make people feel awkward and, and sort of like it was not what they sh we should be doing. So your repertoire is a valuable part of your personality. And, and some speakers have a larger repertoire than others. <laughs> and it's sort of like speaking two languages instead of one, even though Americans are often skeptical of people that come over that learn English as a second language that come with the first language. They're actually more cognitively successful over the long run in terms of using more of their brain, having better aging processes, mm -hmm. using more um, sort of uh, important skills over time than people that speak just one language. There's a good amount of research that suggests bilingualism is very beneficial to you cognitively. And yet we, we have this instinct to dislike people that don't speak English as a first language. Unfortunately, that seems to be a tendency. Well, mm -hmm. the same goes for people that are bidialectal, that have much more range in that repertoire, which is interesting because you and I both have a range in our repertoire, but it's not as great as someone who came into the standard English school system, for example, from a non-standard dialect background and had to shift even more to get to that kind of model. So then they have a really big range. So what differs between us as speakers of a dialect of American English is not that we have bad English versus good English, but the difference in how big of a repertoire that we have. As someone who did not do very well in French class in high school enough to be able to fluently <laughs> speak the language, I'm going to embrace my public speaking as a, as a second language. That's my second I, language. <laughs> I think that counts. And it gives you a bigger range because you use that very formal, articulate kind of speech more often. Mm. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you the gold star <laughs> on that one. <laughs> we touched on this earlier, but I'd love to get some more uh, sort of detail with you uh, from you rather with regard to expanded use of the word like that. I think a lot of people, teachers and parents probably mostly kind of put in that laziness rebellion category. How might this be misguided beyond 
what you talked about already? Uh, sure. Well, like is such a fascinating word because talk about chameleon. You know, like has had many, many different forms and shapes over the centuries. We see it first in about the 1200s used as mainly a verb and an adjective. And then we see it around the 1500s start to expand into prepositional and some conjunctive uses. So we see it as a conjunction in some cases. Uh, so similes, for example, she has eyes like the sky is where it would be used as a preposition in those cases. And what we find in all those early cases is it was used to express some sort of similarity or in a manner of kinds of usage. So if you say someone swan-like, that means they're they're doing it in the manner of a swan or quick-like, which would have been a way it would have been used early on. It was in the manner of being quick. And actually, our, ver- our um, adverbials with an L-Y today are derivatives of what was originally like. So if you were quick-like, you became quickly. And that's actually how that form came. So we've already done some stuff to like over the centuries. (laughs) But what really is interesting is we think of that discourse marker like use that people tend to really shiver about today as being something new and novel. But it actually has been around since the 1700s. Oh, wow. And we really didn't start dissing it until we started to associate it with, guess who? Young women (laughs) and the Valley Girls Mm. stage, right? And um, particularly in the 1980s with Southern California Valley girl kind of identity. And, and yes, it was used in those contexts and that probably helped fuel its spread, right? A Southern California feature, but it existed in English for hundreds of years prior to that used in pretty much the same way. In fact, in the 1700s and trial transcripts and in literary verse, we find like used as a discourse marker, exactly as it's used today. Mm. Um, what is completely new with like is it's used as a quoted verb. And that's where you say something like, instead of I said, you said I was, you would say I was like, mm-hmm. and that's sort of a yeah a way to quote someone. It's called a quoted verb. But what's interesting with all these usages is that they basically replace one-to-one another use that, that a speaker would have. So we think of them as sort of this verbal filling garbage, but <laughs> in most of the cases we use it, except it's strict discourse marker use. The new forms that we don't like about it, and that's when it's used as sort of an approximating adverbial. So you'd say something like, oh, he was like 10 instead of he was about 10 or as a quoted verb. I was like, I don't think I'm going to go tonight. He was like, yeah, I think I will. You would have replaced it with say. So it's not a riffraff. I mean, it's useful and it's exactly a one to one substitution of another word that you'd use instead. So our dislike of like in those contexts can't have anything to do with it being a useless word because it is useful. And we have other words that are used exactly the same way that we don't dislike. So it has to do more with who's using it um, and the fact that it's new. And we often don't like new things as they come into our language, especially if we don't do them ourselves, then we think of them as ew. <laughs> now, the one the one use I, it's harder to defend in, in that sense as a one-to-one correlation is discor- true discourse marker-like, which a lot of people group all those likes together. But the reason it sounds like there's so many likes in people's speech is because there's three different new likes that are coming in. Mm. But discourse marker-like is the one that's at the beginning of a sentence or the one that's sometimes in the middle of a sentence where it doesn't seem to fit. You know, you stick it in there and you could remove it and you'd have the same semantic meaning of that sentence. And that one, um, people, especially older people, really don't like because they feel like that's useless and verbal riffraff. But remember when I was talking about the prepositional conjunction uses where it signals similarity or in the manner of or some Mm -hmm. sort of um, approximation? Mm -hmm. Well, what does that like do that we use as a discourse marker? It actually serves exactly the same function. If I say something like um, such as, see, there's like creeps in everywhere. If I say something such as uh, I went to this party and it, it was like, okay, what that tells you is I'm, I'm approximating, I'm estimating, I'm providing a subjective sensibility about my own estimation, my own evaluation of what that party was like. So what like signals in that discourse marker use is subjectivity. So it is a signal to you as a listener that this isn't any kind of you know assessment from an objective standpoint of what happened. This is my own personal opinion. And I want to signal that by providing this sort of approximating inexactness with this marker like. What's fascinating is it actually is the same purpose or function that has derived from like over the centuries, where like as a conjunction or like as a preposition expressed inexactness but similarity. 
And that's what that like does. So long story short, even though we don't like like, see how prevalent like is? <laughs> it, it does serve a function. Um, I think what we dislike is the fact that young and especially women, female youths tend to use it uh, much more than older speakers do. And so it stands out. If you look at the research, though, young men are actually using it as well. Some of the criticism, though, pointed at not the use itself, but say an individual who's using it like almost like every other like word. <laughs> yeah, I think people don't like like in general, but what they really notice is this very prevalent use in some people's speech. Um, I, and I think there's two things about that that are important to take away. One is that the types of over like liking is actually limited to a a small subset of speakers that tend to get over-exaggerated in their use. So a lot of times what you'll see is these videos on YouTube or whatever that get 5 million views because the speaker says like so much. But like everything that's reported in the media, it is an exaggeration. And we tend to notice things that are really extreme versions of something that happens in the rest of the population to a moderate degree. Mm. So most of us are moderate-like users, not over-like users. So I think you know, this worry that all of a sudden, if you use like, you're going to become this like speaking monster is (laughs) probably not going to happen. Second thing is the the truth is that people at a certain age, adolescents tend to use features that are new and novel, especially if they're sort of rebellious and Mm nonconformist with adult norms at a much higher rate than they tend to use them as adults. And this is something called age grading. We have a lot of studies of this phenomenon in um, English or in all languages, but one thing we do find it in is like use. So uh, Sally Tagliamonte, who's done a lot of the research on like, along with Alex Darcy, Mm -hmm. they both studied like, and what they found was in their corpus of young speakers from ages, I think like eight, nine, very, very young to early adulthood. They track their use of like, and what they found was like use peaks in adolescence and then tends to reduce as people go into adulthood. Yeah, we, we're, we're chameleons in that sense that no, no one's going to talk like they did in high school when they go out on the job market. As long as that job market's going to reduce, you know, have a, a impact on the kind of standard language norms. I mean, some people work in fields that doesn't matter how you talk. You know, if you're out as a lumberjack cutting trees down, what matters is that you could communicate about danger, about, you know, what happened last night because you're out there and when no one else to talk to. Mm. What doesn't matter is that you're using highly standard speech. So if you could like all you want out there, no one cares. <laughs> but bank tellers tend not to have that same kind of uh, loose, <laughs> loose language norm. So obviously, speakers that are young use a lot of like because that's really cool at their age. And it signifies this identity or this quality that's really important to them. One of the things being that it's Mm anti-adult as they age, even though parents fret about it, they do reduce their, their use. And in fact, we have good studies to back that up, that age grading happens all the time and it does happen with like, so I think you don't need to worry. And you're saying that as a mom. Too. As a mom. Yes. I mean, my daughter is an avid like user, but I've noticed that her use peaked. Um, she's almost 16 now. And I'd say around 13 or 14, she used a lot more like than she does now. She's actually self monitored her use of like so that it's not as cool as it was. And that's what <laughs> happens. I mean, parents aren't impacting your kid's speech. You know, good luck with that one. <laughs> but life impacts their speech. And they adjust because they notice the different pressures and the different mm-hmm social identity that projects may or may not be what they want at that moment. Mm. You know, we talk about like uh, a lot too has been written about the misuse of the word literally, or as our British friends might say, literally uh, talk a bit about the history of that word and, and, and the subject really of, of intensifiers uh, uh, more broadly. Uh, that's actually, I'm laughing because uh, my husband actually uh, is constantly telling me I'm an over-exaggerator. And <laughs> I actually start that chapter with a story about my husband because uh, I'm constantly like, oh my God, I'm so literally frozen. <laughs> <laughs> and just last night I was at my daughter's track meet and uh, we've been having a lot of snow and cold weather. And as the light and anybody who's ever been to a track meet knows they and they go for like 20 hours. I just <laughs> use like perfectly that way to estimate, didn't I? <laughs> And uh, this one was no different. It went long into the evening and it got really cold when the sun went down. And so my husband came over and I said, I am literally frozen. And he goes, there you go again with your, (laughs) your exaggeration. So I I get it because I know a lot of people find that as sort of hyperbolic and um, not desirable to use literally, non-literally, but literally 
is part of a class of words that we have, what we use more broadly in English, called intensifiers. And they're usually adverbs of manner that we use in front of adjectives to boost or emphasize what that adjective's quality is. And that is things like terrifically, um, fabulously, completely, very, so, pretty, really. Those are all intensifiers. What's fascinating about intensifiers and literally is also part of this class is they generally are words that at one point in English meant something very different, but they meant something that involved a high degree of something or a hundred percent of the qualities or something or a very large part of the qualities of something. So a great example of that is the word very, which came to us from French. And in modern French, there's the word vrai. And if anybody speaks French, if you say say vrai, that means it is True. And vrai actually comes from the old French vrai, which also got taken into English in the Middle English period when French was very influential on English as vrai. And that's where very comes from. And its original meaning was true. So in, you know, text from 1400, you'll see things that will say he was vrai in word and dead, which means true in word and deed. Mm. Or you see Jesus described as a very prophet in early renditions of the Bible, which means Jesus was a true prophet. Mm, mm. So its majority use until about the 17th century for very meant true. But what does true mean? True means it has a lot of the qualities of whatever you're describing, right? If he's a true prophet, he's a hundred percent of what it means to be a prophet. Mm. So it can also signal degree. And even by Chaucer's time, even early in its history in the 14th century, we find a few subtle uses of very, meaning not exactly true, but more degree. So, for example, in one line, Chaucer says in the Canterbury Tales, he was a very proper fool, obviously with much better of a Middle English accent. <laughs> <laughs> and that means he was very much a proper fool. He was a true proper fool where true is meaning a degree. So we see it very subtly start to shift so that every once in a while it's used not to mean just true, but to mean true in the sense of degree. By the 17th century, that's the majority use of very. And the use where it means true or actual becomes its very minority use. So you can still use it that way today. You can say on this very spot, he died, which means on this true spot, on this actual spot. It doesn't mean high degree. So it now has shifted so that the use of very is more towards its only degree sense and not towards its actual original sense. Well, we don't mind that because that happened 300 years ago but literally is doing the same process of what we call semantic bleaching, where this quality of literal meaning true or to a large degree of the accurate rendition of something as if it were literal, the quality of that that's very, that's a lot, has sort of been bleached out from its original sense of being literal. And so the same process that happened with very is happening now with literal and literally. The problem is it's happening as we're living it not 300 years ago. So we don't notice it anymore. And it bothers us because we see it and it has this other competing meaning that's more prevalent, which means literal. Mm. The other thing I think that bothers us about literally is that the non-literal literal is actually completely not literal, right? It's the opposite of its meaning. But we've also done this many times through the courses of English. Um, Obviously, in colloquial English, you can say, oh, that's bad, meaning that's good, which is the opposite. But even if you get away from colloquialism, uh, if you ever said, that hardly bothers me. Well, what hardly means there is it doesn't really, it was no difficulty, it's not a problem. But hardly until about 1600, the actual now obsolete meaning was with great difficulty. Mm. or vigorously. So it's actually come to mean the opposite of its original meaning or awful. When you say something's awful, it's bad, but actually originally awful meant full of awe. So we've done this over and over. And this is what I mean by our perspective is jaded by the moment rather than the history. And literally is no Mm. different. In fact, Jane Austen, James Fenimore Cooper, S. F. Scott Fitzgerald, Mark Twain, all actually used literally, non-literally. But because, again, like with Chaucer, it was the minority use at that time, it wasn't noticed. But now what's happening is so many people are using it that we notice it and it bothers us. But it's just because we're in that moment where it's changing rather than having the change happen 100 years ago or so. Oh, the King James Version of the Bible, John 5, 24, where Jesus says, verily, verily, 
I say unto you, truly, truly. Yes, you know. exactly. That's right. That's right. And the Tinsdale Bible is the one where he called that where Jesus is the very prophet mm. is, was from the Tinsdale Bible. And, and you, your last point there, just hitting on this, I kind of want to drive this point home. The through line here is that though you may not like a particular vocal tick uh, in the present, understand that the way you speak probably had its share of dislikes 50, 100 years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> there were parents rolling their eyes, I'm sure, in the 19th century over many yeah. of the things we do. So, for example, how many of us say shall anymore in American English? But mm -hmm. in the 19th century, that's what you should say when you use the I instead of will. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure parents were rolling their eyes at all those teenagers that were <laughs> will this and will that and I will and I won't. But now that's all we say. Yeah. This last one I want to ask you about, I have trouble wrapping my head around. As, especially as a former uh, broadcaster and, and current podcaster, I, I pay a lot of attention to, to how something is said as much as I pay attention to what's being said. I mentioned earlier about trying to be you know, more articulate and, and, and being more deliberate in my enunciation when I'm in front of a microphone, those kind of things. But um, I think vocal inflection is incredibly important too. And I would be curious to know what your take is on vocal fry and vocal pitch and, and inflection more broadly, because that for me is, is though I can sort of get behind these, these other things, you know, not being a big deal necessarily when you take it from a historical perspective, I still struggle with accepting vocal fry anytime soon. <laughs> Yes. And I love, you know, that you're honest about that because what's interesting is I think if I put you on a, a sort of acoustic waveform measure that we would find fry in your speech, mm. especially that you have a low pitched voice and fry essentially what vocal fry is, is the um, sort of bunching up of the vocal folds to make them heavier and thicker, which makes them vibrate at an irregular rate. So they vibrate more slowly and they vibrate irregularly when you're, you're in a low pitch frequency, yeah. it's, it's less noticeable because that drop in pitch to get to that irregular pulsing of the vocal folds is a much smaller drop. For women who start at a higher pitch more generally, that drop is more noticeable. And that's why I think women get called out for fry because actually fry is a male feature predominantly, or at least that's how it's been studied previously. Um, but before the 2000s, when fry got called out in women's voices all the time, the studies that had been done on fry, mainly in British English, had suggested it was a hyper-masculine feature, in fact. <laughs> so there was a really interesting study done in 1988 that looked at different dialects of British English and the amounts of fry in those dialects. And they found that fry was used by men three to 10 times more than women. And the difference being which dialect they were from. So it was not only gendered, but it was also regional. So certain regional dialects tended to do it more than others. But in all the dialects, men fried quite a bit more than women. And the perception, when they studied the perceptions of fry in men's voices, was that it gave them authority and status and that it was sort of the mark of a higher, well-bred, educated person. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is the same feature that's studied in you know one a different group can be found to be eloquent and educated and authoritative. But when we look at it in a group that tends to have social stereotypes about them more generally that don't have those qualities, we don't look at it the same way. So mm -hmm. it's I, th I think it's important to call out that the same feature gets judged positively when used by a different group. But when young women use it, which seems to be the population that we notice in American English, and it does seem to be true that they use it more in American English, young women than men, uh, that it's negative. And that has more to do with the social stereotypes we have about women's voices and the ideas about where women's voices should appear. Mm. And the fascinating thing about vocal fry is when it started to appear in women's voices in America seemed to correlate with the increasing number of women in broadcasting. So it's really fascinating to me that you, as a someone who's worked in broadcasting and, and professional speaking for your your whole career really does notice it. It's not surprising because that seems to be where it first started to appear. There were um, some studies in the 1990s done on broadcast news, and they compared men's speech in America to women's speech in America in broadcast professionals. And what they found were those speakers, women were using vocal fry more than professional speaking men. So more than broadcasters, male broadcasters. Now in the early 2000s, where we start to see a lot of the literature coming about with, oh my God, there's vocal fry in women's voices. It sounds so awful. It's a grading. It's annoying. Why are they doing it? It's going to kill their job opportunities, blah, blah, blah. 
a similar study was done. And I think it was about 2004, where they looked at women in professional voice settings and men in professional voice settings. So newscasters, those kinds of things compared to men and women not in those settings. And they found something very similar to the earlier study that women in broadcasting used more vocal fry than men did. But normal men and women, ones that were not in professional voice context, used about the same amount. Mm. So one thing I think it's true about vocal fry is this prevalence of vocal fry in broadcast settings on like NPR, which is where we hear a lot about complaints about women's voices on NPR having vocal fry, has actually highlighted vocal fry to a point in women's voices that isn't accurate of the general population. So it's made it more noticeable to us. And then we sort of generalize that to all women. But it is true that young women, and do use it about twice as much as young men in studies that have been done like around 2010, there were a number of studies and they suggest that young women in America use it more. I think the trick is to think about why they might be using it more. If we think about where have women's voices not been welcomed, professional settings, what are the kinds of voices we do like in professional settings and what kinds of voices get better ratings in professional settings? Well, not high voices, low voices, masculine voices. That numerous studies supports our association with low voice pitch, with the qualities that we like in leaders, with the qualities we like in professionals, with the qualities we like in assigning people professional, competence, authority ratings. What doesn't a low voice get ratings for for women? Attractiveness. But what does a man with a low voice get? Attractiveness. So men don't need to alter the voices to be professional or attractive, but women do. Because to be an attractive woman, you need a higher voice. To be a professional woman, you need a lower voice. What does vocal fry offer? Excursions into low pitch Mm. while you have a higher voice. So I think it's a really fabulous solution to that sort of double bind that women are in where they want to have a lower pitch voice for a professional authority sort of projection, but they also want to be feminine. And so they ex- sort of do this excursion into low pitch with vocal fry mm-hmm. without giving up their higher pitch elsewhere, which then, of course, makes the vocal fry more noticeable because it's a high pitch to low pitch excursion. Uh, related to this, the voice changing is, is, is another book I want to bring up. I don't know if you're familiar with, I mentioned the John McWhorter book. Are you familiar at all with Change Your Voice, Change Your Life by by Dr. Morton Cooper? No, I do know John McWhorter's work quite well, but I don't know that. Yeah, uh-huh. this, this goes back to 1984. And there's a quote I pulled out that I just kind of want to get your take on. I didn't plan on asking this, but but the paragraph is this. It says, the voice you use is one you chose to imitate, either as a child or as an adult. It's perhaps that of your mother, your father, role model uh, from an impressionable period of your life. Because you lacked voice instruction, you adopted as a matter of course the inflections, rhythms, sounds of someone else. You might have even chosen one type of voice in an attempt to disassociate yourself from another that you consciously disliked. In all probability, the voice you habitually use is not your natural voice at all. From a linguistic perspective, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Um, There's a lot that we find with voice and heredity, and we also find there are a lot of things that have to do with pitch with sort of the the thickness of your vocal folds mm-hmm. and how long they are. So there are certain biological characteristics of voice that I don't think are um, completely arbitrary. But that said, I absolutely agree with the part about we, as we learn to be a man, a woman, a standard speaker, a, a broadcast professional, whatever we see ourselves as, as we're growing up, has a huge impact on the way we alter that biological basis for voice pitch. And absolutely, if you look across cultures, you see that the way that voices are in those cultures is very much dependent on the type of culture that we have. So in cultures, for example, where gender distance is greater, there's a greater distance in male-female voice pitch because we find that even though there might be some underlying biological predisposition to have sort of longer, thinner vocal folds or shorter, fatter vocal folds or, you know, different weights of vocal folds that have an impact on your speech as a man or woman. So men, for example, have heavier vocal folds than women on average. You can stretch your vocal folds out to make them thinner and you can bunch your vocal folds up 
unconsciously even to make them thicker. So you can alter that voice pitch. And it seems like we learn what the appropriate voice pitch for our gender is. And that has a huge impact on the pitch we adopt as we go into adulthood. So I agree 100% that we model our voices off of those that we identify with. And that can be larger socio-cultural models that we're given. So what's a model for being a man or woman in your culture? But it could also be, I want to be a news broadcaster. So I'm going to identify with that or I want to be a fashion model. So I'm going to identify with that. Whatever that is, I I do agree it has a big impact on the way that you moderate, not just your voice pitch, but the inflections, the types of stylizations you do with your voice, those kinds of things. Anything from the book I haven't asked you that we should know about that you want us to know about? You know, one of the things that I wanted to do with this book is not just take the things that people notice and talk about consciously. So, you know, we talk about like use, we talk about literally use non-literally, but we also have opinions about the way people speak that are much more subtle. And in fact, that's the more typical way that we react to people's speech. You know, they may not say literally non-literally, but that doesn't mean we don't get opinions about them from the way they talk. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we do form opinions on people with is the way they form their progressive participles. And that's a fancy word for the ING that's on those verbs that we talk about continuous or habitual action with. So for example, I am constantly eating Oreos, or I am always walking my dog, or, you know, he is always laughing at my jokes. Well, one thing that we talk a lot about is people dropping their G So they're saying, I was laughing or I was walking, I'm talking. And all of us do this. All of us have this variant in our speech. In fact, it has coexisted in English for the entirety of English's um, lifetime, not exactly in that form, but this idea that we have these two different endings. Um, And we do it for a really big social purpose. So think about when you're out, you know, as you said, at the, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings with your buddies, if you walked around and said, I was talking to my friend and we were considering whether we were going there, you would have no friends, right? (laughs) No one would want to hang out with you if you talk that way. Instead, you're like, yeah, I was talking talking to my friend and we were considering going over here. I mean, that'd be normal. That would be informal, casual. That would signal we're close. We're friends. When you go to talk to your boss about, you know, how you screwed up on the last report, you better have those G's with you because you want to sort of have formality and, um, and seriousness, which seems to be signaled by ing. Mm. So it's an alternation we all do. But what's interesting is we do put a lot of weight on it. So when someone uses a lot of in, it does seem to affect the way we think of them. There was a really interesting study done by Bill LeBove, who's uh, sort of the founder of modern sociolinguistics and a number of his colleagues in the early 2000s, where he changed up a speech sample so that in some cases it said ing all the time on every verb ending that was ended ing. And in other cases, he switched one, the first one to in. What he found was when there was even as little as one in in that speech sample, it altered people's ratings of that speaker towards more negative ratings. It negated all the future ings. No matter what they said for future ings. So clearly, even though we don't think about the fact that we judge people for their in, we actually do very strongly. And it was important to me to include something like that in the book so people understood that these prejudices and biases we have towards speech are really unconscious in many ways. But just really quickly, the really fun thing about our ing is actually ing is not the original ending on our progressive participle. Guess what is? In. In is actually the original <laughs> participle. And I mean, so you'll see, you can read about the long haul story in the book because it's a very complex path, how we got from in to ing. But it really is based on 18th and 19th century notions of prescriptivism and the written word being elevated. So what happened is when literacy started to be more widespread and people were at that time writing the progressive participle as ing, even though actually it had come from an old English ending ind, the old English ending for progressives uh, for ing participles was actually not ing, it was ind. And in old English, there was another ending ing that was for derived nouns like evening. The word evening is actually from that old English original participle that basically formed nouns. Um, Another great example is hergyung, which was used with that ing derived noun ending. And that meant to raid or arrayed. And it went meant from the active, it was from the active pillaging is what that word meant. So ING actually did something else in old English. It got sort of appropriated as a progressive ending and written that way by the time literacy became widespread. 
So we sort of misanalyzed our in endings as ing. And in fact, if you look at things from the 1700s, you find pronunciation guides and even writers like Jonathan Swift telling people that the correct way to pronounce progressives or not really progressive at the time, more just ing participles on verbs was in. So Jonathan Swift, for example, who was a grammar maven, he really did not like language change, tells us that the correct form at court for learning is learning. That's how it should be said. And then we also find um, pronunciation guides from the era that tell us that coughing and coffin should be pronounced the same way. And heron and herring should be pronounced the same way, which means heron, coffin, and learning. So I-N was actually the original participle form and ing only got superimposed once written language became widespread and people started to believe there was a g on their ing endings which actually there was not and and i think to your point too isn't some of the issues taken with these language changes oftentimes an attempt to take written communication and apply it to verbal communication strictly Absolutely. It's sort of the elevation of the written word is essentially what spawned prescriptivism. Um, first of all, this the idea of codification of rules that really happened in the 18th century. And once we started codifying rules and writing them down and looking at writing as the better form of speech, well, when really writing and speaking are completely different, and in fact, speaking existed thousands of years longer than writing did, um, that kind of tainted the well for, for all speakers from then on so that we think of the written word and however it's written to be the correct one. But when it doesn't correlate, we often go the opposite direction. So for example, think of the word often. How is that written? O-F-T-E-N. But if someone says often, they can be ridiculed. And that's because actually prior to the 15th century, often was pronounced often. And that's the original form that got lost over time. But that's one of those cases where, okay, well, we're not going to go with the spelling on that one. But when it comes to ING, we're going to go with the spelling. So I'm just trying to point out how arbitrary that is. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. Well, Valerie's uh, book, again, is one I think you should pick up for all the serious and fun reasons uh, that you've heard about today. It's called Like Literally, Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Uh, Valerie, uh, we've gone far longer than I intended to. I could go on still. Uh, I love this topic. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of it with us today. Absolutely. It's really been fun. Thanks for having me on. Now, Valerie and I got so engrossed in conversation that I ran out of time to ask her a couple of questions I ask most every guest, one of which was her favorite books to recommend. But you might recall I recommended a couple, and I'll be sure and put those in the show notes. There's Doing Our Own Thing, The Degradation of Language and Music and Why We Should Like Care by John McWhorter. That book came out in 2003. And I also mentioned Change Your Voice, Change Your Life, a quick, simple plan for finding and using your natural dynamic voice. That book by Dr. Morton Cooper came out in 1984. I'll put links to both of those and the other resources we talked about at the show notes page for this episode. That is readtoleadpodcast.com slash 472 for episode 472. There you'll also find ways to connect with Valerie online, both at Twitter and LinkedIn. Don't forget to join nearly 400 people in our Read to Lead community. It's absolutely free. You can find out more about the community and what you get when you join at jeffbrown.me. Next time on the show, our guest will be Miriam Schulman, author of the book Artpreneur, a step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. That's May 2nd on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, don't forget... Leaders read and readers lead. Ladies, at Essential Health, you're not just a patient, you're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more.